I'm Susan Freeman. Welcome back to our Property She podcast series brought to you by Mishkondorea in association with the London Real Estate Forum, where I get to interview some of the key influencers in the amazing world of real estate and the built environment. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Peter Freeman, who together with his brother, Michael, founded the Argent Property Group in 1981, floated it in 1994 with a value of £140 million before taking it private for £240 million with backing from the BT Pension Scheme in 1997. Argent are best known for developing Brindley Place, Birmingham's major 17-acre regeneration scheme, and subsequently the 67-acre mixed-use King's Cross regeneration scheme. Argent were selected as developers for King's Cross in 2001 and have transformed the area into a vibrant and thriving commercial hub that's attracted many high-profile occupiers, including Google, Havas, Louis Vuitton and Universal Music, to name just a few. The King's Cross Regeneration Project has won strings of awards, including the most innovative development of the past 20 years at the Property Week Awards in 2015. Peter remains actively involved as a non-exec director and investor. Peter read history at Oxford and then qualified as a solicitor. He's been chairman of the Investment Property Forum, a non-exec director of Land Securities, a member of the Bank of England Property Forum and of the British Property Federation Policy Committee. He's also a former chairman of the leading public arts charity, Artichoke. He's on the Council of Marlborough College and chairman of its property subcommittee and on the board of the UK Holocaust Memorial Foundation established by the government. Peter is also actively involved in promoting new garden cities through Mayfield Market Towns and was shortlisted for the Wolfson Prize on delivering garden cities. So now we're going to hear from Peter Freeman on how he went from being a lawyer to founding one of the most successful property development companies of the last few decades. Peter, welcome. Just starting at the beginning, you trained as a lawyer. I believe you did your articles with your father's firm, DJ Freeman, but you left the day you completed your articles. Did that cause problems? And why, why did you take off quite so quickly? Um, I don't think I was a natural lawyer. I thought the clients were having much more fun. I also realised they were having more risk. But while I think my father was delighted that I trained in his firm, as, as did my brother, at the end of the day, it had changed very much from the firm we'd heard about while we grew up into something much larger and much more formal. And I think we were ready to be entrepreneurs. Was, was the legal training in any way helpful? Did it, did it teach you to be analytical? I think the legal training is fantastic, particularly for the property industry, because in property, typically you have a relatively small company at the centre of the developer, and then it has to tie in landowners, bankers, tenants, builders, architects, and the nexus of contract is absolutely central. And I think also the the process of thinking out heads of terms, particularly for joint ventures and so on, the legal process, I think it helps you thrash out a deal so that if you have one with another party, you really know you have it and you want it. So you and your brother founded Argent in 1981. What was your ambition when you started the business? What did you have in mind? Uh, we actually started two businesses on the same day. That's because um, lawyers tend to think that they're cleverer than clients, so business must actually be quite easy. That's a huge mistake. Business is very hard. And the first business made a couple of Channel 4's first dramas, and the second business, Argent Estates, made our first property development. And there is a link between the two, because for a developer, you read a producer in film for... Uh, 
architect, you read a film director. For a piece of land, you read a script. So again, it was bringing together teams to produce a product we were proud of. So when you started the property company, did you start with the intention of being a major development company? What did you have in mind at the time? I think we were always ambitious to do things well and and build better than average buildings. But our first development was all of 4,000 square feet in Southampton. Um, The neighbours were the Southampton barristers who opposed our application and referred to me as Mr Big, age 25, even though all I wanted to build was 4,000 square feet. But I think the first time we did a brochure when we've been going for about four years, we said the aim was to be one of Britain's most respected developers. So you started off on single buildings and in, I think, 1993, Brindley Place came up and Brindley Place was 17 acres. So that was quite a step forward. How did you come to be the developers on Brindley Place? It was a quantum leap and a lucky piece of opportunism. The site had been put together by Birmingham City Council and then sold to Rose Hall, who were one of the kind of red-hot listed developers of the 80s, I think market capitalisation of 600 million. Um, and when they crashed to earth, the receivers had to sell it because it was on a peppercorn lease from the council and the council threatened to forfeit the lease and as development started, so enter us. 17 acres at the time was sort of quite a large-scale development. How, how did you get started on it? Did you sort of sit and think, right, what are we going to do with this? Did you bring in a team of people who'd done this sort of thing before? We, we inherited a master plan which, which basically worked, built around three main squares. So it was the first time we were building public open space as well as buildings. We bought it for £3 million from the receivers against a historic cost of £30 million. And so we also inherited a three million, uh, £30 million tax loss. And we just started from the bottom up. We built the first building in the first square in year one. And it took in all about 10 years to build out 2 million feet in about 15 buildings. And it's been very successful and it's um, stood the test of time. It, it works as a community. And there, there must have been learnings from that for King's Cross when you moved on to King's Cross. I, th- I think one of the things we realised is if you're building your own public open space, not only is it a privilege and a challenge, but it completely changes the dynamic of the buildings you're marketing because you are creating a place and you're creating your own destiny. And Actually, in some ways, it's less risky to be marketing a whole area than to be marketing a single building because if the single building comes up at the wrong time in the cycle, nothing is really going to bail you out. If you're marketing and and planning over a 10-plus year period, you can ride out the downturn. And I think with the political cycles as they are these days, you have to be able to ride out what's going on. I hadn't realised that that Rose Hall were involved with Brindley Place because I I think, in fact, they were involved in the early days of King's Cross. And I remember, I think, the first MIPIM, Rose Hall were there with a life-size model of what they were planning for King's Cross. So that must have been in about 1995. 89, 90, I think. But Arjun, I think, were appointed as development partner at King's Cross in 2000. It took another year to sign the documents, but 2000 was shaking hands. Okay. King's Cross is the largest mixed-use development in single ownership to be developed in central London for, I think, 150 years. So you came in in 2000, 2001. Um, I think it took another seven years before any work started on the site. Uh, That's right. I mean, five or six years of that uh, was the planning process, and we didn't really 
show plans rather than consulting for at least two or three years. And then there was another couple of years at the end, which was really getting vacant possession because the Channel Tunnel rolling was running behind and they were using the land in the meantime. I read somewhere in an old press report, Roger Madeline talking about his team meeting 9,500 people during a couple of years of consultation. I mean, that sounds massive. I think that's probably true. I think that was really Roger personally, <laughs> with, with a little help from others, but he, it was an extraordinary job he did. Was there a lot of frustration at the, um, at the delays and what, what caused the delays at the outset? There were opposition groups, as there are to almost any development. And although what was there at the time was largely dereliction, a nightclub, some prostitution, some drugs, people still don't like change and they put forward unrealistic ideas. So some people said all affordable housing, some people said all playing fields, some people said national um, conference centre. And we always knew that to make it a proper part of London, it had to be mixed use, it had to have streets and parks and places, and it had to have employment and homes and leisure. Now, I can, I can understand that because I, I remember being involved in uh, Blue Sky Think Tank about King's Cross in you know, the mid-90s and we were talking about 24-hour shopping. We thought it would be an ideal place for 24 hours. before the internet. <laughs> <laughs> it, was before the, yeah. it was before the internet. So there must have been times during this process that you actually wondered whether anything was ever going to, to happen. Did you ever give up on the dream? I don't think we ever gave up on the dream because it was derelict land with six tube stations nearby. So sooner or later, something was going to be permitted and happen. We did get sad at how long it took. And when it finally, finally was the moment of truth, we had in principle a 700 million loan lined up to kick off with three office buildings, two apartment blocks and most of the infrastructure. And the loan just evaporated, just sunk into the sands because um, a company called Lehman went bust the week before we got vacant possession. Ah, oh, that must have been interesting. That is the problem with, I suppose, the long-term nature of, of development. You just don't know what's going to come up. But um, going back to my theme about mixed use and controlling your own destiny, although at that point it would have been hard to fund a residential block or an office building, we'd been talking to Central St Martins and they are effectively government-funded and they had a long-term need for a new campus. And so our first user was Central St Martins. And I mean, that I think was brilliant because that immediately injects colour, young people, life to the area. So I think that was the sort of one of the first things one noticed during the first phase is that, you know, there were all these incredibly creative young people around the place because it must take time to actually establish a sort of feel of community. And you had them there on the spot. Absolutely. And I think they attract commercial occupiers because we're now in a world where sort of design and fashion and contemporary thought are critical to almost all businesses. And then how much of the success of King's Cross do you think is down to the fact that you do have those wonderful heritage buildings as well as the modern design because they somehow immediately create a sort of feeling of, of place and sort of ambience? I mean, I think all of those things, the, the, the canal and the heritage buildings, give a sense of belonging. And if you ever think of being brand new, um, it would feel more like a, an artificial business park, a Chiswick Park or a Canary Wharf. So we're delighted it came with those buildings. And of course, one of the latest um, phases is Coldrops Yard, which again makes the most of those old Victorian buildings. As you've developed in phases, are there things that you learned from the early phases that sort of changed the way you thought about some of the later phases that, that, that you've done? Or has it sort of very much gone as you had planned it at the beginning? Um, I think it's largely gone as we planned. I think probably the biggest 
change is the decreasing role of cars. When we were planning and seeking an application, we felt it was very important to have basement parking in nearly every block. And we regarded the boulevard from the station across the canal as something which certainly took buses and taxis, even if not private cars. In reality, almost everybody is coming there by public transport. From the earliest days, the number of people walking up the boulevard was extraordinary. I think sort of half of Islington and Camden must be deciding it's an attractive shortcut. And so we've now decided that the boulevard will basically be pedestrian forever. And in terms of actually getting the community to engage with what you were doing initially and getting everybody on board, I remember one of the things you did very well in the early stages was the meanwhile uses and actually the temporary things that went in during planning stages. And I I think quite recently, I don't know if you've still got it, but there was a wonderful uh, swimming place. The the swimming pond. The the swimming pond was actually a temporary art installation, even though you could swim in it. And it was meant to be there for a year, but the plan has extended to two years. But it's now been replaced by a a bigger grassed public square and play area. But other temporary things, there were the theatres that Donmar had an outpost, there was the railway children um, on the site, which is now becoming the Google site. And still running is something called the Skip Garden, which started in the earliest days when we wanted children locally to be able to come and plant a garden. And then we thought, but what happens when we need to use the plot on which they planted the garden? So we actually got them a whole load of skips that we could then move to another part of the site. And it's still operating 10 years on. So on a project of the size of uh, King's Cross, you must be working quite closely with the local authorities. How how important has collaboration with the uh, local authorities been through the development of King's Cross to date? I think it's tremendously important. And there was a magic moment after we'd got planning when the local authority asked to come to a board meeting of ours. And we thought, slightly strange, but if they would like to come. And in effect, the I think it was the head of finance, the head of planning and the head of states really just came to say that it was the most exciting project they'd ever worked on and they were delighted we were going to build them a new town hall in the middle of it. So uh, the relationship is pretty close. You can't ask for more than that, can you? Moving on to um, one of your other interests, Mayfield Market Towns, which is, um, for our listeners, it's you're planning 10,000 homes in a new market town near Horsham. So you clearly you have a a keen interest in housing. I remember you remarked that crises are normally short-lived, but after 12 years and 18 housing ministers since 2000, why does the housing crisis still show no signs of being resolved? Do you have any thoughts on why we're still talking about it and not really doing that much? I think that it's an outcome of where we've got with the planning system and with delivery of housing, mostly by a few major house builders. I don't think anybody is really to blame, but it's become a sort of not virtuous circle. Housing has not delivered wider community benefits because housing has normally been monoculture. It's been a housing estate stuck on the edge of um, an existing settlement and it hasn't brought new schools or playgrounds or health centres or jobs. So it's seen as overloading the existing services, as putting more people on commuting into London. And therefore, although everybody lives in housing and should be grateful for the house they have, many of which have been built post-war, there is a reluctance to have more housing. And the reason I'm interested in the Mayfields project 
is to try and demonstrate that if you build a whole community with schools and jobs and leisure space and parks, you can actually cut down commuting, you can improve quality of life because people aren't spending so much time commuting, you can get children walking to school again. If we could just do Mayfield's right and get that through, maybe that would be an exemplar and and help more people to get large schemes through that had a holistic approach. The government's talked about garden villages, but I'm not sure that anything has actually really really come through yet. There's a few, but but mostly more two to five thousand homes. And for me, every extra thousand homes um, adds to the, the critical mass. Um, you're not really going to get a senior school until you've had maybe five thousand homes. To start getting jobs there, to start getting doctor surgeries there, to start keeping people there because you've got your own leisure centre and a pool and a climbing wall or whatever, suggests scale. But it should be scale that also tries to relate and and support local existing villages so that you can benefit from their population and they can benefit from what you bring. How are you getting on with the Mayfield project? Slow. (laughs) Um, We're going through a local plan process in Horsham. They are considering, I think, eight uh, major sites, of which ours is the second biggest, a Homes England proposal is the biggest. There's probably room for, for two, of, two of the larger proposals or three of the smaller proposals to come through, we know, next year. And are you looking at using um, off-site construction and modular-type housing where you've not got to thinking about that yet? We went up to see a factory called Topat near Derby, which Blackstone or Goldman's have now invested in. Um, I am going to go and see Tony Pidgeley's factory shortly with him. I think it is coming. I think if Barclay decide it works, uh, they're normally ahead, ahead of the field, but it's not really working as of today. No, well, I think the Sekisuri investment into um, Urban Splash might help. We'll get some Japanese mm. know-how and maybe yeah. some, some scale, but it's beginning to happen. So... But just thinking about your career so far, is there anything with the advantage of hindsight you would have done differently? I I don't think you can really have a master plan for a career. Um, I think it's a mixture of sort of what interests you on, on a day or a year and happenstance and opportunism, chance, who who you meet or what sites come up. But it's been satisfying. And has anybody been a role model or a real inspiration to you? I don't think any sort of one individual, but in different ways there have been people probably typically 20 years older who I have seen in in the way they conduct themselves in all sorts of different ways. The When, when they're full on the pedal, when they're off, off the pedal, how detailed or how big picture I, I've definitely learnt from. So... Looking at it the other way, talking to young people coming into real estate now, what what advice would you give them? Would you advise them to train as a lawyer first or um, skip that step and go straight in? I, I think it's changed quite a lot. And this may just be me becoming older and more cautious, but I think it's more difficult now. I think there's far more far more international money in UK property. There's far more other people's money, you know, whether it's hedge funds or pension funds or whatever. Planning is infinitely difficult. Both Steve Morgan and um, Tony Pidgeley have made that point that, you know, when they started, they could buy a site and be on site a few weeks later kind of thing. Mm. And 
now you can be, you know, six months, a year, three years, five years in planning, even for something not that big, so that the risks and the hurdles to get going are more now. I think because the the capital available has got more sophisticated, there could be more case for for going to business school, for having an apprenticeship with um, a property kind of hedge fund. But I, I think when I started, particularly for doing development, um, I, think, I think law was a very good background. And what do you do when you're not focusing on your various property endeavours? I've got five children and six grandchildren, which fills up some time. Um, I have run marathons and played te- tennis. Uh, I read a lot. I almost never watch sport. I, 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 I keep watching sport to, to the cup final and the Wimbledon final, whatever. And have any of your five children gone into real estate? Um, my second daughter, who knew your son at school, <laughs> um, uh, is a sort of flat developer and interior designer in London and jolly good at it. So one out of five? One out of five. OK, well, that's, uh, that's not bad going. Peter, thank you very much for sharing your time today. My pleasure. Thank you, Susan. How fantastic to hear from Peter Freeman, who, despite the name, is no relation. He's literally been responsible for reshaping the face of our cities. As he says, luck is important if you're a property developer, as is engaging with the community. And clearly, you have to have patience. So that's it for now. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please join us for the next Property She podcast interview coming very shortly. The Property She podcast is brought to you by Mishcon Rare in association with the London Real Estate Forum and can be found at mishcon.com slash property she, along with all our interviews and programme notes. The podcasts are also available to download on your Apple podcast app, the purple button on your iPhone, and on Spotify and whatever podcast app you use. And please do continue to let us have your feedback and comments and, very importantly, suggestions for future guests. And, of course, you can also follow me on Twitter at propertyshe for a very regular commentary on all things real estate, prop tech and the built environment.